everyone. Welcome to episode 21 of When Survival Looks Like Success, our little award-winning Best of Detroit 2022 podcast that aims to help people not get back on track, but find a new train altogether. And that's kind of been my slogan for a while. I tell people, so I'm going to tell you that again. I tell people a lot, like, you don't need to get back on track. You need to find a new train. So often we focus on getting back on the wagon or getting back on that same path that obviously wasn't leading us anywhere to success. But if we kept falling off the fucking wagon before, why do we think that that is going to work again? It's a definition of insanity, right? Repeating that same shit over and over and over, but expecting different results. Well, if anything... I hope this podcast helps you insert different thoughts, feelings, opinions, or motivations to help you find a new course, a new drive, or a new path, which leads us into today's episode. This episode is entitled Hashtag Not an Alcoholic, and it is an emotional one. It's a two-parter where I discuss my journey and struggle with alcohol abuse, and this these were very requested episodes, so... Hope you're all ready for this. Strap yourselves in. This is a bumpy fucking off-road type of ride. This ain't no easy ride here. I didn't necessarily like drinking socially. Even though I started young and I was wild and experimented like so many teens often do, it wasn't something that I instantly gravitated towards. It wasn't like my missing puzzle piece. I know a lot of people I've talked to that have struggled with alcohol have said, oh, when I started drinking, it felt like this was the thing that made my life complete. That was not me at all. Alcoholism, at least textbook alcoholism, ran in my genetic lines extensively. My great-grandfather had it, my aunt had it, my dad, and so on and so forth. They were all self-proclaimed alcoholics or someone else in the family claimed they were alcoholics. But the alcoholism manifested differently for each of them. But it still existed. You know what I'm saying? Now, there are some rather extensive studies about the genetic predisposition for alcoholism. But knowing what I know now... I strongly feel that the genetic issue for me was in the way of mental illness and self-medicating, not necessarily the alcoholism in and of itself. I started drinking regularly, I would say, around 18 or 19, because I noticed it helped my nightly leg cramps. I had like those horrible, horrible Charlie horses like you get in your sleep. You know, the ones that wake you up out of the dead of night and you're like, oh my God, this hurts so bad. And you're like gripping your leg and gripping your calf and nothing helps it. I was having that like every single day, like every single night. So this one night I had a glass of Italian wine in the backyard, nothing crazy. Like I asked my mom for it. It was no big deal. And for the first time in years, I didn't have those awful Charlie horses in my sleep. And at that point, I was getting them, I would say like six out of the seven nights a week, like maybe five at best for months, like six months or longer. And they just didn't know what was causing them. Nothing was helping. 
So years later, I did discover I had venous and circulatory issues, which made sense why the wine would help because it thinned my blood. But that was probably the starting point to becoming more reliant on alcohol for self-medication. I did drink socially a lot in my late teens and early 20s because, well, that's like what people do that were our age, obviously. You like go to house parties and you go to bars and you sneak into bars and you go to concerts and shows and you always have like that older person buying booze for you. And, um, you know, that's it's like almost a rite of passage, right? That's what teens do. That's what older teens do. Or like, you know, we're in Detroit here, so we could like go to Canada at 19 and go to all these stupid bars and act like we were really adult, but we weren't. (laughs) We were like not grown, but we were acting like we were grown, like going and getting drunk in Windsor. So, um, God, stupid shit. I'm I'm surprised I'm not dead. (laughs) Like, I might say that like 25 times in this episode and the next one, like, surprised I'm not dead. The difference between me and other people my age I would say was that I had a higher alcohol tolerance than most people from the get-go. Like I was born with a high-ass alcohol tolerance. For everyone else having two beers, I could have four. I could have more shots, more wine, more liquor, just more. I remember like in my early 20s, I could get off work, go to the bar. I could drink an entire pitcher of beer, not be buzzed, be fine. And with regular drinking, that only grew. And grew. Like my tolerance grew exponentially. Routinely, a lot of my friends and I would be at the bars pretty much every night. Like every night I was with somebody socially, we were at a bar. And I never, ever, ever had a hangover. I'd either still be drunk and sick or nothing at all. And that factor alone prevented me from steering clear of alcohol. Because the less consequence and accountability you have, the less likely you are to quit something or moderate it. Like, I'm going to say that again. The less consequence and accountability you have, the less likely you are to quit something or moderate it. And that's with anything. That could be with gambling. That could be with smoking. That could be with cheating. That could be with spending money. If you're not being held to a standard, if you're not feeling like the wrath of your actions... You're just going to keep doing the same shit over and over and over because you're getting away with it. And what you're getting away with actually feels good, too. That's the thing. I've always been an all or nothing girl. I'm very compulsive and rightfully so as I have OCD. We'll get into it later. But what I really learned was that my drinking was not an addiction definitively but more so like a compulsion or an extension of my mental illness. It was this thing that I was doing. It was this thing that I was executing. It wasn't this thing. It was this it wasn't this thing that I was like, I have to drink right now. I have to drink right now. It was more like a habit or a pattern that you end up developing. Like, oh, I've got my hands dirty, so I'm going to wash my hands. So for me it was like oh, I'm stressed out, so I'm going to drink. Or I feel like I'm having a panic attack, so I'm going to drink. It became this like reflex, almost like a mental reflex. So in my early 20s, I did that really definitive bar scene. A lot of my friends were heavy drinkers, and I was for sure the quintessential party girl. 
Even when I started settling down more, anytime I'd go into a social setting or people I knew or a house party with people I knew, it was like, hey, Jessica, come do shots or hey, Jessica, bring that bottle into the hot tub and a lot worse things than that (laughs) or whatever. You know, just it was always like, hey, Jessica, pretty much come get fucked up with us. Right. That was like the underlying the underlying words, the underlying meaning, the hidden agenda like. Hey, Jessica, come get fucked up with us, no matter how it came off. But in society, and at least in our society, in American society, and I can't speak for anything in terms of European or African or Asian, I only know American society. Drinking a lot in your early 20s, the 21st birthday party, all that shit is a social norm and a rite of passage. It's like, oh, you got a 21st birthday party? Are you going to get fucked up? Right? It's just that's how it was. And in Detroit, it was like, oh, 19th birthday party, are you going to Canada? Like, just stuff like that. But looking back, it shouldn't have been. Like, why the fuck was that our social and societal norm? Why is that a rite of passage? Just because we can doesn't mean we should be doing. I I would drink even when I didn't want to. I think that's the thing. I would drink because it was there or because I was there. It was a matter of convenience most of the time. And to be honest, I don't know where my problem with drinking really began. Like if I look back, I can't, there's not like this one point in history or this one point in my mentality where I can remember, oh, I've started drinking every day or, oh, I've started binge drinking or, oh, I'm not just like a little party drinker anymore because no matter what, whenever I drink, it was kind of a lot. I don't know. Everybody else was drinking a lot, too. I think that's the thing. It wasn't. I I would never go anywhere. I would never go to a bar. I would never go to a party. I would never go to like a social setting and someone would be just having one drink. I would just be like blending in and following the crowd. I think the difference was is that everybody else would hit their limits really fast. They would hit their limits so much faster than me. So they would be done and I would still be drinking and drinking and drinking. And there was a lot of parties where I was puking or left early or had to just go to sleep. I'd have to pass out like wherever the fuck I was. I would just go hard. I was like a hard partier when I did drink. I had a hard time stopping. So it was like once I picked it up, I just wouldn't stop that night. So if I was at a party and I pick up a mixed drink, it wouldn't just be that one mixed drink. It was never, not even two, unless I knew I had somewhere I had to go. It was never just the one or two. And years later, like, hello, red flag. (laughs) You maybe have an alcohol problem. I bought a pocket breathalyzer, like this portable pocket breathalyzer. Because as I started paying more attention to my alcohol consumption in my later 20s, I noticed that it wouldn't hit me for kind of a while. And I started noticing this a few times when I would get stuck in traffic or uh, there'd be like an accident on the freeway or something like that. I would have like maybe left the bar with a friend, had two or three drinks, and then say I'd be stuck in traffic for 20, 30 minutes. All of a sudden, it would hit me like a ton of fucking bricks. And suddenly I'd be like, oh, shit, I'm not home yet, but I like feel drunk, drunk as hell. And so this became dangerous because I'm driving, right? So if you like have a couple drinks and then you leave a bar and you have an hour drive home, 
you know, it's not hitting me. I'm having this like insanely delayed reaction. So as I measured with my little pocket portable breathalyzer, I'd go from like a 0.04 to an hour later, like a 1.2. Whereas like my husband, you know, we would like measure his and he'd be reversed. You know, he would drink a couple drinks and he'd be higher, you know, his, you know, alcohol, his alcohol, um, right? What is the, what is that name? Alcohol content level, alcohol. What is the, what do the cops call that? Whatever, where you blow, you know what I'm talking about, but, (laughs) oh, BAC, BAC. So his BAC would be higher, like after he would drink. So he would drink a couple beers and say he'd be at like, you know, he'd be really high. And then his would go down. And I think that's what most people with regular metabolisms do. They start off really high and then they go down, down, down. So he'd be at like a 0.12 and go, I think I said a 1.2 earlier. Like, no, not a (laughs) 1.2. But he'd be at like a 0.12 and then go down to like a 0.04. Whereas I was reversed. And he's having this normal fast-paced metabolism where it's hitting him faster and then you're metabolizing down. And for me, it was like, no, I'm not metabolizing this shit at all. And my metabolism has always been kind of slow. This apparently applied to alcohol too, though. And I don't know why I never put two and two together, but there were a lot of instances looking back that I should not have driven. But I did. So why? For pride? To not leave my car back like around somewhere in a parking lot. Now, Uber wasn't around back then. Like in my early 20s, like we didn't have Uber. And I think that helps people out a hell of a lot more nowadays. And in Metro Detroit, our public transportation is, let's say it less than stellar. (laughs) It's pretty much non-existent. Like you have a car. That's it. You have a car. Like we don't got taxis. The buses half the time don't show up. Like there's no public transportation here. There's no, there's nothing. You got your car. You got your car. You got your friend that has a car. That's it. We're really vehicle reliant. Bars will have your car towed, like straight up. It's not like you can just leave your car there. A lot of times a bar will straight up have your car towed. So I just feel there is so much shame about if you need to leave your car somewhere. And that's something that I think really does need to change in like drinking and societal culture, like making it more normal and making it more acceptable that, hey, if you need to leave your car somewhere overnight, like you give it like a 24 to 48 hour window for someone to come back and get it. Because like me, I mean, I was driving probably when I shouldn't have been. There's not even a ton of responsible actions or even options that were available at the time. And I certainly wasn't choosing them or electively choosing them. I can't tell you that I can count on one hand, maybe more than one hand. I would go home with guys because I was drunk and couldn't drive. Because, you know, that was a safe, that was a safe option. Like, <laughs> let me just go home with some guy that I met, like, you know, or maybe I knew him. I might have known him. I might have known him even for a while. But I might not have even wanted to go home with him. I just knew I couldn't drive and I was fucked up. And he would drive me back to my car in the morning. So it's like there were a lot of warning signs that I had these major alcohol problems. I really couldn't till the end of my drinking career. And it's weird. I say drinking career a lot, but it feels kind of like a career. It was a a long time. But I really could never have just one. 
And I think that was the biggest tell for me. If I would go out and drink, there was never, oh, I'm going to have a drink and be done. Even if I was with family, even if I was with friends, I mean, at anything. There was never, I always wanted to have another one. Even if I did stop, I'd be thinking about how am I going to get the next one. I Googled, am I an alcoholic? A bunch. That's a common tell. If you're concerned about your drinking and you Google, am I an alcoholic? Yeah, it, it's, it's a trap. That and your doctor evaluating your level of alcoholism. It's like a free pass. Like, whew, okay, I'll keep doing what I'm doing because I'm not technically an alcoholic. And for some reason, that passed the test with everyone. It's like if you weren't an alcoholic, like shit was fine. I didn't have to drink every day. But every three or four days, yeah, that was happening. And until I really understood how alcohol detoxes out of your body, it kept me thinking I had a lot less of a problem than I did. There's that rationalization. I got away with a lot of shit while I was drinking. I think my lack, I think my lack of consequence really fueled my fire the most. But in the instances where I was guilty and fessed up and did some dumb shit I had to apologize for, it still didn't resonate. It didn't matter. It still didn't sink in. I'd wait until the guilt passed, and then I would just move on with life. I would swallow it. I I became like a sword swallower, but with guilt. I learned how to eat my guilt for everything and just move on. And the more then, not only did my alcohol tolerance build, but my guilt tolerance build. So suddenly I had this monster of a guilt tolerance. So I would just do all kinds of stupid shit and it wouldn't matter because my guilt tolerance was through the roof. I look back at my journals and self-care plans and for years, I mean years, I talked about drinking less, like wanting to get my drinking under control for a lot of different reasons, like drinking empty calories, weight loss, money, not just because it was shitty for me in terms of health, but like a lot of other reasons too that people maybe don't factor in. But I know that I wrote about it constantly, like constantly. Which leads to another problem drinking sign. If you're following along and keeping your own tally, like at home here or on your walk, uh, I started setting a lot of rules about my drinking, like a lot of rules. <laughs> Don't drink more than two a day. Only drink red wine. Only drink clear liquor. Don't drink more than two when you go out. If you're day drinking, drink water in between every drink. Don't drink more than four a day if it's full day drinking events. Like I had all these written out. And it just went on and on and on. Those are just the ones I remember off the top of my head. But I know there was probably like another 10 more. I think I created overall over the course of, of my drinking career, probably like 20 to 25 different roles total to, in an attempt to control my drinking. Because you don't ever want to admit that maybe your drinking is out of control, even if you're not an alcoholic. It becomes this weird gray area. And when I was drinking, I was really out of control. But the strangest thing is, is no matter how fucked up I was, I still felt in control to some degree. And it was the oddest duality. It was the oddest sensation. People never talked about my drinking, at least to my face. 
Really, only if I was puking or sick or my mom would check in on me worried about the family's dreaded alcoholism gene. Like nobody ever said shit to me about my drinking, ever. They never said like, hey, Jessica, you really need to like cut back or hey, Jessica, like you really need to stop drinking. You have a fucking problem. Like anything like that. There was never that intervention step. Nothing, nothing. And I don't know if maybe it was because I would sometimes bring it up. Or there would be these times where I'd be like, I think I'm an alcoholic. Or, oh, I think I need to quit drinking for 30 days. There was another one, the drinking detox. I had a lot of drinking detoxes. I would be like, you know, I'm going to give my liver a reset. Like, poor liver. I'm going to give my liver a reset and stop drinking for 30 days. Like, And then I would just go right back to doing the same stupid shit I was before. I just – I wasn't learning. I wasn't learning. And there were so many warning signs looking back, but it really wasn't until I was sober and learning about other people's sober journeys that I was like, oh, (laughs) duh, ding, ding, ding. So the title of today's episode, hashtag not an alcoholic, really comes from my personal identification of my relationship with alcohol. I hate labels. I hate them. They are so definitive. And when it comes to the term alcoholic, there was this standard of, You're either an alcoholic or you're fine. And guess the fuck what? There is a huge range in between that is most definitely not fucking fine at all. And as I grew to need more of a technical diagnosis or term and work on my own identifications, it was important to me to share that while I wasn't a textbook alcoholic, I still had a giant problem with alcohol. I abused alcohol. I became reliant on alcohol. I self-medicated with alcohol. I binge drank alcohol. Like, yeah, I wasn't an alcoholic by diagnosis, but it was still not okay for me to be doing any of this. And yet I was just slipping through the cracks because I wasn't at this one level. Like I wasn't at like the boss level. And in recent years, it's still not widely known actually to a lot of people, but The medical community has begun changing their definitions to include alcohol use disorder and alcohol dependence disorder instead of alcoholism. This is a step in the right direction for sure, as it will help people recognize more and more of their behaviors and patterns and evaluate whether they want to cut this toxic shit out of their lives too. So the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual of Mental Disorders essentially states if you have two or more of the following symptoms, you have mild alcohol use disorder. And the more you have, the more severe it is. And so it's much easier to recognize now. It's not just nothing or alcoholic. It's no, here's this wide range of scale and it kind of ranges from like pretty mild to more severe. So here are some of the symptoms. The first one. More alcohol is consumed in larger quantities or for longer periods than intended. Hello, binge drinking. The second one. There is a persistent or consistent desire to regulate alcohol use and control or cut down. The third. A lot of your activities surround alcohol. Obtaining it, consuming it, or recovering from it. Fun fact. I would only go to restaurants that served alcohol when we would pick places that would go to dinner. And when we would go out with family, friends, anything, I would only suggest other restaurants that had alcohol. That was it. I would never want to go to a restaurant that didn't have alcohol, Um, which meant I missed out on a lot of great restaurants. There's a ton of great restaurants that don't have alcohol. 
The next one is alcohol cravings. Plain and simple. It's just you have a desire to drink. You're like, I need a fucking drink. That's it. Failure to accomplish what you need to at home, work, or school because of drinking. I think that was something that I never added up for me, really until the end, really until the end. I was always able to get my shit done, straight up. The things you love, the hobbies you do, and social activities are avoided if alcohol isn't involved. You know You might know you have a problem if everything has alcohol. If your softball game has alcohol, if bowling has alcohol, if you're going to those like um, art wine classes, if every single activity you're doing has alcohol in it, yeah, it might be a little bit of a problem. Might be a little bit, just saying. If you have hazardous alcohol-related situations, that's like, you know, you're drinking and driving or you've like injured yourself, like falling, you know, off a ladder while you're drunk or you're doing like stupid drunk tricks off a skateboard, like shit like that. Continued alcohol use after a medically related setback, like liver enzyme issues, sclerosis, and more. If you notice your tolerance levels changing. And last but not least, withdrawals, which there is a huge scope of symptoms when it comes to withdrawals and some you might be really surprised about. By the end of my drinking, I had like seven out of 10 factors, but I maintained about five out of 10 for most of my drinking career. But guess what? It wasn't 10 out of 10, so I wasn't a freaking alcoholic. And so there you go, slipping through the craps again. Thank God they started redefining the factors to include less extreme but still damaging stuff. I think I probably wouldn't have continued drinking as long as I did if the definitions were different at those points. Or maybe I really would have gotten that shit under control. Because a doctor mildly saying, well, maybe you should cut back a little, isn't exactly the wake-up call that you're going to heed. So my enough is enough moment came when I was throwing my life away with alcohol. I started really throwing my life away. I had been drinking heavier and heavier to cope with home life, turmoil, grief, and my OCD and mental issues. I would drink to feel more free. I'd drive while intoxicated a lot more. I'd start arguments. I'd flirt heavily. I cheated. I'd forget shit constantly while I was drinking. I spent way too much money. And yeah, a lot of this was towards the end of my drinking career, but I did all of this throughout the course of my drinking. This was not like just a month or two. Like I did all of this shit throughout the course of my drinking. My alcohol budget was easily around 120 minimum a month, and that was if I never went out, which of course I did too. So there was tons of months where it was well over 200. I would drink with clients. I drink with family. I drink by myself. My drinking was like a roommate. And I think the hardest part by far, though, was that when I drank, that was when I felt the most like myself. It calmed my brain down more effectively than anything else, and unfortunately to this day, Still did. That that was the thing that worked the best. I could sing and play music, read, write, and just relax into my brain, which was so overwired and overworked. But the buzz, that uh, moment when you have that first sip, it goes away. And you want it back. You want more. You want it to last. 
it's all you want. But it's not your brain. You'll never be in that state unless you're inebriated. And that is really hard knowledge to swallow. And you get depressed as fuck about that. And then you drink because you are upset simply about that factor. And it repeats tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And pretty soon, clients were following me home for safety, and I was letting friendships turn into lust and risking my license and my finances way too fucking much. This was like that carnival ride. I think it's called the hurricane. And it's the one where you, you're in the car and you go really, really fast in a circle, and it keeps going faster and faster, and you're stuck against the side of your car, and you feel all that exhilaration. But then it starts slowing down, and you feel the disappointment set in. But you keep getting on that ride just to feel that happy release and feel those endorphins. The day I decided to go sober the first time, I didn't know it. But my childhood best friend had committed suicide that day. And in the middle of the night, I had this voice in my ear and it woke me up. I mean, out of a dead sleep. I remember I sat straight up in this drunken hangover, dripping sweat. And it said, you are not going to get another chance. And that was the jolting start of my journey into sobriety. So the next episode will be all about that journey, which was not seamless. And so often we hear about a seamless sober journey, and mine is not. So I'm going to share about that next. It is unscripted. And I have not done that since I started the podcast. But I think it's important to do it, so that's why we're going to. So please add my Instagram page and TikTok. I'm trying to grow both of those because after our season finale, I'm going to have a lot of great social content that I'm going to share. So those are when survival looks like success on Instagram and TikTok. And I would love if you shared your journey too. Like, have you been sober for a while? Do you think maybe you need some help? Do you want to know about programs? Like, you have questions. Let's do this thing. Community is everything with sobriety. It's everything. But it really starts with a decision that you make alone in your own solitude. So take care, my friends.